Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 40, What Happened to Nancy Moyer? I want to start this week's episode off with a factoid, which may seem a little off the wall, but bear with me. The fact is, I love elephants, probably more than I love humans. I'm kidding. But seriously, I love how they care for each other, and I'm not going to lie, the fact that they are a matriarchal society, female-led, let's just say, I think humans can learn a thing or two from elephants. Which is all to say, given my strong feelings about elephants, when a video recently landed in my social media feed that featured a mama elephant and her little baby entangled together in a mud pit that they couldn't get out of, I nearly lost it. Apparently, when there's a drought... They can get stuck in these mud pits that are like quicksand, but they don't sink. They just aren't able to propel themselves into a standing position. So this mama is up to her shoulders in this pit. Her little one is nestled right by her side. And after hours and hours of trying to maneuver out, mama and baby cling to each other. And you get the sense that the frustration and fear has turned into an exhausted acceptance by both. There's no escape. And yet... They have each other. In this video, aid workers arrive to help. Mom is in no position to protect her baby. But these humans trying to pull him away from her reignites this fire inside of her belly as she futilely attempts to lay her trunk protectively over her calf. It's the only thing that she can do as the workers pull the baby out. But then he immediately rushes back to his mother's side in this mud pit. And this cycle will repeat itself multiple times. They get the baby unstuck, and he runs back to be with his mother. And that's when the aid workers realize that he'd rather be stuck with his mother and die than face a world without her. Eventually, they sedate both baby and mother, and after an incredible effort by the rescue workers, they're free. And they walk into the sunset, which is great. But since seeing this video, I thought, what would the baby have done? If he woke up and his mother was just gone without a trace. In this particular thought experiment, I can already hear the cries for his mother. And this keen is what reminds me of how I felt when I spoke to Nancy Moyer's daughter, Samantha, back in 2021. Samantha was just nine years old, the night of March 6, 2009, when her 36-year-old mother, Nancy Moyer, disappeared from her home in Tenino, Washington. And she's been searching for her mother ever since. She just was everything. Like, I didn't even sleep in my own bed at night. I slept in her bed at night at the time. And so I was really close to her. And she was basically just ripped away from me. And it was horrible. And I can't stop thinking about it. Like, I just I want to know where she is or what happened to her. And I want whoever did this in prison for the rest of their lives. It's been nearly 15 years. And Samantha is still asking the question, where's my mommy? But let's start at the beginning, before Samantha was even born, when Nancy met Bill Moyer, when she was working during the summer at a plant nursery in Elma, 
At the time, Nancy was a student at Central Washington University. After she graduated from college, Nancy and Bill got married in 1996. A year later, they had their first daughter, Amanda, and then two years after, Samantha. But after a decade of marriage, Nancy and Bill would call it quits. They separated in 2007, but they remained on good terms. Nancy would move to Tenino, a rural community with around 1,800 residents. It's about 75 miles from Seattle, and Bill kept the family home in Rochester, which was about 15 minutes away. Over the next two years, Bill and Nancy fell into a routine. Nancy had the girls during the week at her place in Tenino from Sunday until Thursday, and Bill had the girls on the weekends from Thursday until Sunday at the family home in Rochester. We went to our mom's house every Sunday night through Thursday, and then our dad would pick us up from the bus stop on Thursday after school and keep us until Sunday afternoon. It was the tail end of winter in 2009. Samantha says she was a shy nine-year-old who still slept with her mother on the nights that she stayed over. The very last night that they had together was like any other evening. Filled with her mother's typical brand of silliness, she would recall dancing and singing together before falling to the floor in a pile and giggling at their goofiness. My mom was pretty goofy, at least with us. Um, we'd like sing songs together and like dance around the house. Um, I heard that at work she was like more shy and not as outgoing. But I mean, that's kind of how me and my sister are too. I think most people are more reserved when they're not with their family. But when she was with our family, she was completely outgoing. She was super funny, super bubbly, just amazing. <laughs> Samantha would recall snuggling up close to her mom that night, having no idea that that Wednesday would be the last time she'd feel her mother's warm embrace. The next morning, she went to school and afterwards was back at her dad's place for the weekend. And like clockwork, by Sunday, the week reset. Bill was driving the girls back to their mom's place in Tenino. He pulled up to the little house. Samantha recalls bounding up the four stairs that led to a small deck that was attached to her mom's modest cream-colored A-frame home. They burst through the door like they always did. Only this time, once inside, everything felt different. There wasn't anything out of place, but the house was ice cold. The door had been left ajar. When he drops us off, he comes into the house to talk to her with us. I mean, he usually came into the house with us anyways, and the door was open and uh, we were calling her name and she just wasn't around. She wasn't anywhere. The television was on as were the lights in the bedroom and the living room, but where was Nancy? Nothing was making sense to Bill or the girls. Their mother was always there when Bill dropped them off. And yet everything felt different. They reasoned that there had to be a rational explanation because Nancy's white Honda Civic Del Sol was in the driveway. Her purse with her ID, car keys, wallet, and cigarettes were inside the house, undisturbed. Maybe she went for a walk. That had to be it. Her long brown coat with a fur-type lining that she often wore wasn't there. But the door being slightly ajar seemed suspicious. It just didn't make sense. March in Washington can be very chilly. In fact, that weekend, it had been snowing. So the fact that Nancy's door was found slightly open is an important detail that law enforcement would use to help put together a timeline for the events leading up to that Friday night. 
But on that Sunday, when the girls were looking to their father expectantly for answers, he didn't have any. Bill just knew in his heart that something was terribly wrong, but he put on a brave face for his daughters. Essentially, he was like, let's just go back home. But later, he would circle back to Nancy's place. So we figured she was going on a walk. Um, even though it was in winter, she sometimes went on walks just around the neighborhood. And so we left and we came back and she still wasn't there. And so we were getting freaked out. And I had no idea what to think of the situation because I was nine and I didn't even know that people went missing in the world or that people were even murdered in the world. On that second trip back that day to check on Nancy, when Bill saw that she still wasn't home, he called police, was told to wait 48 hours, which he did before filing a missing persons report. How are you? Good. If people had stopped killing each other in this county, I would be a little better, but that's okay. I guess that's job security. That's Thurston County Sheriff's Detective Mickey Hamilton. Don't let the edges of that dark humor fool you. When it comes to solving cold cases for families, he's all in. In some of my other cases, which, you know, they're closed very quickly, uh, these cases have been dragging on for over 10 years, and that's tough for the families, and I feel horrible for them. Anything I can do to help, I, that's what I'm trying to do. Detective Hamilton wasn't working the case when Nancy went missing, but he says that after she disappeared, they took that missing persons report very seriously. It's a very small town. There's no traffic lights. It's got a grocery store, a couple of convenience stores, a couple of bars, and that's about it for the town of Tenino. As far as safe, it's as safe as anywhere until it's not. It was obvious that Nancy wasn't the type of person to walk out of her life and leave her family behind. She was an incredibly reliable person. After graduating from college, Nancy got a job at the Department of Ecology as an accountant. She'd been working there for a decade when she disappeared. It's a very strange thing for a mother, norm, uh, you know, state worker, state employee, government employee who's got a decent life and nothing crazy going on and just to disappear. So it was shocking for the Department of Ecology. It was shocking for the people at Tenino. And um, she'd grown up in the area. So her family was well known in the area and she was well known. Even so, from the beginning of the investigation, few leads surfaced. Detective Hamilton says they followed the breadcrumbs left behind at her home. They began to piece together Nancy's Friday night. How she'd left work at the Department of Ecology on Friday at a little after 5 p.m. with a co-worker who she carpooled with. Nancy dropped off her colleague and then went to a little grocery store in town at around 7 p.m. They found a receipt at her home, which showed that she bought some wine, cigarettes, and a hungry man microwave dinner. This sounds like a shopping list for a solo Friday night. But it was odd. On the coffee table in the living room, there was a glass of wine with another glass next to it. Well, there's several glasses. So there was two glasses by the kitchen sink that appeared to be dirty. There was one glass on the, on the uh, I guess, the coffee table in the living room. There was another glass that's not really a wine glass. It's kind of been mistaken for a wine glass or described as a wine glass because it was a glass that was next to the other wine glass. But when you look at the crime scene photos, it's more of a 
just a juice glass or any common drinking glass and it's upside down. There's nothing in it. So there's some change there. And my theory, since I've started taking over and looking at this case is that she might've had change in that. I mean, we know that one of her last purchases um, when before she went missing was some cigarettes. So I don't know if she was counting out change to use that change to buy those cigarettes or not. But my theory is that that empty glass is because it was full of change and she dumped that out there on the coffee table to count it. Then there was one more glass with a little bit of wine in it found in her bedroom next to her nightstand. So those keep coming up as the investigation goes on as are they indicative that there was more than one person there or is it um, are, were they older and they just hadn't been cleaned up yet? But you're correct. All the fingerprints that we found on all of the glasses in the house have only come back to her. There are some unidentifiable prints that haven't been matched yet, but all the ones we have been able to match are hers. Nancy lived near a busy street that was also a popular speed trap. A Tenino police officer would later recall that when he was positioned with a radar gun, he saw Nancy pull into her driveway and then grab her groceries before she went into her house. This was the last time anyone saw Nancy alive. Samantha says in the early days, trying to understand how her mom just went missing was incomprehensible. I didn't really know what to think. I thought maybe she went to a hotel uh, without telling us, or she just like skipped town and was coming back in a week or whatever. But we got the police involved uh, because my dad reported her missing after the 48 hours that they told us we had to wait. And I just was completely confused. And I didn't really think it was that big of a deal because I didn't know what it meant for her to be missing and what the consequences could be. So I was just really, really confused. Obviously in the beginning, when Bill called the police, he was looked at. He and Nancy had been separated for two years when Nancy went missing. They were actually still married, but right away he offered to take a polygraph test and was quickly cleared. In fact, Bill Moyer has never been named a suspect in his wife's disappearance. Investigators began digging into Nancy's life to find any connections, any issues in her life or beefs with people, something to help them understand what had happened to her Friday night. What they learned was that Nancy was a very private person, she was newly single, and she'd had some short-term relationships, which detectives looked into. They also dug into some of her coworkers, but at the end of the day, they concluded that Nancy didn't have any plans that Friday night. I don't have any indication that she was planning on going out that night. And I think the fact that she only bought one hungry man dinner and took that home with her and we found the wrapper in the garbage can. So she ate it after she got home indicates to me she wasn't planning on going anywhere or having anybody over. Uh, I believe that Mr. Jim Roth, one of the people who's come up in this, he had plans to have a date with her on Saturday night and then he could never get a hold of her according to his uh, various statements. So. I don't know if that might be the source of the confusion because she did probably have a date on Saturday night, but nothing that we're aware of on Friday night. His statements have been inconsistent and somewhat odd throughout the investigation. He said he went over Saturday. So he said he tried calling her several times on Saturday, couldn't get a hold of her. So he decided to go by there. He said he found the door open. So he left it open, went inside, called out to her, wandered around. At one point, he said he never went past the living room. And then he said, well, I might have went and checked the bedroom, but I didn't touch anything, kind of different statements like that. And then um, then he left the door open because he said that's the way he found it. And he thought he should leave it the way he found it, which 
doesn't make sense to anybody considering it was March and it was snowing that weekend and it was very cold and it doesn't make sense why you would leave a door open like that, but that was what he said he did. When they gave Roth a polygraph, it came back as inconclusive, but you can't arrest someone for acting strange. And since investigators had nothing connecting Roth to a kidnapping or murder, that's as far as it went. Technically, especially at the time when he's making inconclusive statements and weird statements, they're not investigating a homicide. They're still investigating a missing person because she's only been missing for, you know, initially a month, two months, no time frame when they're looking at him. She's an adult. It's not illegal to be missing. And so without a body or conclusive proof that she was murdered, that was just kind of a stagnant investigation then. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. After Nancy's disappearance, family and friends passed out flyers and offered a $55,000 reward, which would eventually be increased to $105,000. Canine searches in nearby woodland areas came up empty. Even with that reward, no one came forward with any actionable tips. And without any clues, the disappearance of Nancy Moyer would be ruled as suspicious. But without a body and no leads, there wasn't a lot that could be done. Which for Samantha... A nine-year-old little girl, desperate for her mother, not knowing what happened to her, would push her to her breaking point. I had a breakdown on the playground, and I was bawling my eyes out, talking to my friend. I'm like, it's been three months. She's not coming back. I don't know what to do. And my friend tried to console me and tell me that it's all going to be okay, and they'll find her. She's going to come back. But I, I just told her that I made my mind, and I don't think she's coming back at the time. Over a year after Nancy disappeared, in August of 2010, Tenino would be rocked by another crime, one that they believed could be connected to Nancy's disappearance. That summer, 26-year-old Bernard K. Howell III was driving his pickup truck not too far from where Nancy Moyer was last seen. Remember, that police officer who had watched her get out of her car in front of her home and bring in her groceries that Friday night. So near Nancy's house, this guy Bernard Howell was in his pickup truck when he asks a stranger to help him move a body in his vehicle. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. I mean, even the deputy, um, the deputy that made that initial traffic stop still works here. And I've talked to him about it. And it was pretty crazy that somebody flagged him down and was like, that guy's got a body in his car. He just asked me to help move it or whatever. And the deputy thought, yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, in doing his due diligence, he stops the car. And sure enough, this guy's got a dead lady in his in a uh, sleeping bag in the back seat. So it was uh, it was a bizarre crime for the whole community. That deputy was able to take Howell into custody, where he would immediately confess to murdering 60-year-old Vonda Boone, a stranger to him that he'd observed her enjoying a walk on the Yelm Tonino Trail hours earlier and made the decision to murder her. Ultimately, Howell would plead guilty to first-degree murder, admitting that he'd attacked Vonda Boone on the trail, that he'd slit her throat, beat her about the head, strangled her, and then had sex with her corpse. This idea of him attacking a woman that he had no connection to made them curious 
could he have had something to do with Nancy Moyer disappearing? And there was a connection between the two. Investigators would come to find out that Howell was a door-to-door meat salesman and that inside Nancy Moyer's freezer, police would find the same brand of meat that he'd been selling. My mom bought meat from a guy that came up to our house in a white delivery truck that didn't have like a label or anything. It was just a white truck and he sold us meat and my mom bought meat from him and it was like chicken and whatever. Um, But they showed me a lineup of like a picture lineup of a bunch of different suspects and they're like does this man do you recognize this man and it was the very first picture they showed me and I said yes I do and they just took the pictures away and they're like that's all we need and so they started to follow that. After Howell's arrest for the murder of Vonda Boone the Thurston County Sheriff's Office questioned him about the Nancy Moyer case but as investigators questioned Howell Even though there was a connection to Nancy through the meat and the fact that he lived close by, they didn't think that he'd be the type of person who could pull off a kidnapping and potential murder without leaving any evidence to connect him to the case. Because Bernard Howell's murder was very um, spur of the moment. It wasn't very well planned out. He got caught with the body and apparently didn't really know what he was going to do. He had a vague plan of how he was going to get rid of this body, but he's stopping and asking random people to help him move a body. And it was very poorly planned and he gets caught right away. And then he completely talks about everything that, you know, he did to her, to Vonda, and admits to that murder without any problems. And then, uh, whereas Nancy Moyer goes missing without a trace, it almost seems like a, almost a perfect crime if there is such a thing with no evidence left behind and people aren't even sure she's gone yet. There just was no physical evidence tying Bernard Howell to Nancy's disappearance. When Bernard was questioned about Nancy, he said he didn't know who that was. Compared to Vonda, he was willing to tell us everything about what happened, what he did to her. So it seems to be uh, very different MOs on on those two cases. But it definitely, there were some connections. Nancy's very young daughters picked Bernard out of a lineup saying that he had sold meat to their mom. So there's at least that connection. And again, I haven't ruled it out because it wouldn't be the first time somebody lied to law enforcement. But after this horrific crime, and then no one knowing what happened to Nancy... This small community is left reeling from the gut punch. A beloved mother goes missing, seemingly without a trace. And then a woman just going for a nature walk is murdered. And her body is discovered in a truck with the same guy who sold meat to Nancy. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought, well, this has got to be what happened to Nancy Moyer because that murder happened so close in time and location to where her house was at when she went missing. And... You know, a female alone grabbed. It's kind of got similar hallmarks. After Nancy's daughters picked Howell out of a lineup, investigators would run down this new line of inquiry. But after all leads were run down, the case went cold again. Samantha says as the years passed without any answers, the not knowing was unbearable. But what choice did they have? Samantha says she's grateful for her father, Bill, that even though he was separated from Nancy, he loved her. It's been really hard on my dad. My dad was very kind of sad, but also really angry when she first went missing. Uh, Just like bunch of emotions, doesn't know how to feel, but he's been trying to find her ever since. Obviously, he's been on multiple shows, multiple podcasts. Just he really wants her found. I mean, he loved her. Like, even though they separated, he still loved her. They still loved each other. Even though the case was cold, 
all hope wasn't lost. Samantha mentioned Bill participating in a podcast. In March of 2019, the podcast Hide and Seek, which is hosted by James Basinger, did a deep dive into the disappearance of Nancy Moyer. And through Basinger's reporting, not only did he bring a spotlight to the case, but tips started coming in, and even a confession. Out of the blue, on July 9th, 2019, a 53-year-old man named Eric Roberts, who lived in Tenino, called 911 and told dispatch that he had killed Nancy Moyer 10 years ago and he felt tired of holding it inside. Now, Eric Roberts worked with Nancy at the Department of Ecology, and he also lived just a few houses down from the Moyers family home. Apparently, he would throw these huge bonfire parties on his property. The name Eric Roberts wasn't unknown to law enforcement. In fact, he'd been briefly interviewed by the police after Nancy had disappeared, but so had other colleagues. But apparently, Eric Roberts had a connection to Nancy outside of his work, and that was his nephew, Aaron. And when they interviewed Eric Roberts, they asked him about his nephew's relationship with Nancy. They were following up on reports that she had allegedly visited Roberts' residence late at night on several occasions to meet with his nephew and that they'd had sex. But Roberts denied those claims and stated that Nancy had never been to his house. But now Roberts was calling into 911, confessing that he had murdered Nancy Moyer. I was out there when the 911 call came in. I was doing follow-up on another homicide investigation in the South County, so I wasn't too far away. Which meant Detective Mickey Hamilton, who just happened to be in the area, rushed to his home to interview him, as it would turn out, inside of his squad car. Uh, he was upset and seemed to be like something had been bothering him for a long time that he wanted to talk about finally. And you have a recording a recorder in your car, so you just turned it on, and he's in there, and he says that he did it. Basically, yes. According to court documents, Robert was, quote, crying, clenching and unclenching his fists and wringing his hands. He would say that he had a sexual relationship with Nancy and that he'd accidentally strangled her with a scarf during, quote, rough sex. He said that he burned the scarf because it disgusted him. But when he was asked where Nancy's body was, Roberts would ask for the recorder to be turned off. He would allegedly tell authorities that it wasn't supposed to happen. He would lead them to a concrete fire pit on his property and said, quote, I don't really want to incriminate myself any further, but if I was going to get rid of a body on my property, it would be right here. Eric Roberts would be brought down to the station to be formally interviewed. And after 10 years, it would seem that the family is finally going to get answers. They're finally going to be able to bring Nancy home so they can lay her to rest. We were all crying. We were all super happy and like emotional. My whole family came to my house and we were just waiting on news from uh, the detective. And then the next day we did, we did a press conference in front of the court uh, with all the news people, me and my dad did. This is Bill and Samantha at a presser together. We want to believe this is the end, but I, I think much like the press, I, until there's a body, we, we're not there yet. We, we want to see this carried through to the extent and, you know, and along with that, we, we would like to thank all the levels of law enforcement because over the years we've, we've dealt with a lot and they've, um, they've been very good to the family and, um, and very much, uh, you know, appreciate what they've done because 10 years is a long time for us, and, and I know it's a, it's a long time for law enforcement as well. You can hear the measured excitement 
The arrest of Eric Roberts came as a shock to the family. They hadn't even realized that he'd had any connection to Nancy. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, until this week, I, I didn't realize that, you know, that they had been co-workers at some point in time. Um, it's five-acre parcels or larger out there, and, um, you know, people tend to move to the country to have a little bit of privacy, and, and uh, we knew many of the other neighbors, but um, other than perhaps waving to him at the mailbox as he drove by, I did not know him. During the press conference, Samantha was asked about her participation in the Hide and Seek podcast and the importance of these shows. I feel like people wouldn't have started coming forward if it wasn't for the podcast and James Basinger. And with CrowdSolve coming up, I feel like that gave them an extra push to come forward. Yeah, and I would say, you know, we've uh, we've done two television shows in the last year and a half, and then the podcast on the heels of that, and it has focused a lot more attention on the case than I, I think had been focused on it in, in a great many years. And I, I think the more you're in the national media, the better. And, and that's what people kept saying to us is, you need to get the word out again. It's been a while, and, and we did. And I do think that had an impact for sure. Um, I, I think any tips anyone can provide should be looked at. And if nothing else, I think right now, this is generating a huge amount of um, interest in the case. And, and hopefully it'll, it'll make anybody who knows anything you know, willing to come out. Back in 2019, it felt like everyone involved in the case was on a high. A popular podcast helped shake the trees, and with the cooperation of law enforcement, opening up their cold cases to get the spotlight on an investigation to provide some measure of resolution for the family and also justice. The whole family needs closure. Um, you know, her, her sister needs closure. Her parents need closure. The rest of the family all need closure. Um, not knowing is a hard thing. And, and unless you're in that situation, I, I don't really think you can fully understand it. I've struggled a lot. Growing up without a mom sucks, especially when you don't know where she is. Um, she didn't get to see me graduate. She didn't get to see my first dance, me drive a car, any of that. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm 19. But this would help? It would help so much to find her or find out what happened to her. At this joint press conference, the Thurston County Sheriff's Office weighs in. On July 9th of 2019, we received information which led Thurston County Sheriff's Office to the 16,500 block of Sheldon Lane Southwest located in Rochester, Washington. A male subject was taken in custody and booked into Thurston County Jail. His name is not being released at this time. However, uh, he has not been formally charged, but his information will be released after preliminary court appearance uh, later this afternoon. Yesterday, July 10th, uh, detectives from Thurston County Sheriff's Office along with members of the State uh, Patrol Crime Scene Response Team conducted a thorough search of the residence and property listed above. Detectives remain on scene at this time as they continue to search for evidence in this case. Uh, I can't stress how complicated this case is. And, one thing I really want to mention is I can't thank, yet alone, Thurston County Sheriff's Office, Washington State Patrol Crime Response Team, and the Seattle FBI Office for all of their help and assistance that they've given us. As they were doing the press conference, investigators were digging up Eric Roberts' property, and they were also looking into his past. 
According to court documents, in January of 2014, a detective interviewed Eric Roberts' ex-girlfriend, who alleged that he was like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde when he drank alcohol, and that during their relationship, Roberts was arrested for domestic violence against her. The ex also revealed that when her mother asked Roberts about Moyer's disappearance, she would say that he appeared upset and said, quote, What are you, the fucking police? The girlfriend would tell investigators that during sex, Roberts would choke her to the point that she'd be forced to rip his hands from her throat and even scratch him to make him stop. During this time, another person would come forward with information about Eric Roberts, who reported to investigators that Eric Roberts had poured a concrete slab on his property not long after Nancy's disappearance. This witness said that he'd asked Roberts if he knew anything about Nancy Moyer's disappearance, and that Roberts had said, quote, maybe I do know something about it, but wouldn't say more. Apparently, when Roberts had held these big bonfire parties on his property, that people would even go camping there. But the parties and the camping stopped after Roberts had created this odd concrete structure on the property following Nancy Moyer's disappearance. After Roberts confessed that he'd accidentally killed Nancy during rough sex, he was arrested on suspicion of second-degree murder. His home was searched for two days, beginning on July 10, 2019. This was a huge local story. Drone footage of police searching his property with a bunch of holes, piles of dirt, obviously searching for Nancy. On July 11th at a news conference, Thurston County Sheriff John Snazza said that Moyer's remains had not been found on Robert's property. And in a second interview with investigators, Eric Roberts would recant his confession, saying he didn't know why he told police that he'd killed Nancy Moyer. And as it would turn out, Bill would be right to be cautious in his optimism. I interviewed him for a long time in the car. I don't know, probably close to an hour where we didn't, you know, we didn't just stop with he did it. We wanted details and we talked about a lot of those kinds of things. And then we decided that um, at that time to book him. So we took him to the jail, booked him into jail. And I worked on a search warrant throughout the night then and got that search warrant signed for the property by the judge. And uh, we went back in the morning to talk to him further, question him some things to clarify things about what we were looking for and where we could expect to find him. And that's when he recanted and said that he doesn't know why he said that stuff, but it wasn't true. And They would keep Roberts in police custody on misdemeanor weapons charges, hoping that prosecutors could file murder charges against him. But ultimately, they just didn't have enough evidence beyond his recanted confession. And so he was released from jail on July 31st, 2019. Even the misdemeanor charge against him was dropped. We found out later in the day that he had recanted his confession. He said that he doesn't remember saying any of the things that he said to the detective, uh, Mickey Hamilton. And he also said that he was on medication. And so it probably made him say weird things. And maybe that's why he doesn't remember. Um, But he said that he didn't do it. What was that like for you guys? We all thought it was over, to be honest. We thought it was the guy. And I mean, I... (laughs) A lot of my family still thinks it's the guy, um, and he just got away with it, for now at least. And if you're wondering... Okay, but he is still considered a person of interest. Definitely. How frustrating is that for you guys? It's very, very frustrating. I, you know, 
a lot of people, I understand it from a legal standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint, it's very frustrating. And so I get to explain that to a lot of people who ask over and over again, why we let him go. And, um, you know, there's a lot of legal reasons why he's not in custody at the moment, but we have to do our due diligence and conduct the investigation and meet all of the legal burdens of proof that we need to meet in order to ensure a successful prosecution uh, when it gets to that point. So in your estimation, this isn't the end of that? Oh, definitely not. We're still waiting on a lot of lab results and some other things to come to light and we'll continue investigating it all the way to whatever conclusion we can come to. Detective Hamilton has also worked another cold case, the murder of Karen Bodine, which I've covered in the past, and I hope to share with you on an upcoming episode. Because in both of these cases, the daughters of the victims have spent a majority of their adult lives so far trying to find justice for their mothers, and Detective Hamilton has worked with them both. It's tough. It's, uh, it's what motivates me to keep going on these cases that are so old and um, have been stale for a long time. So it's just some degrees more than others. But yeah, it's it's hard. They do talk to me a lot and they have ideas and I try to work with them as much as I can and try to investigate the things that we can in this case, in both cases. But uh, it's tough being the detective because you're a lot more connected to the victims than you would be in a patrol sense or in some of my other cases, which, you know, they're closed very quickly. Uh, these cases have been dragging on for over 10 years, and that's tough for the families. And I feel horrible for them. Anything I can do to help, I, that's what I'm trying to do. Samantha describes what it was like participating in an event like CrowdSolve in 2019, where law enforcement opens up their murder book in a convention-type setting to a bunch of experts and citizen sleuths who put their heads together on a case. Here's a news report from that event from King 5 that features Samantha and her dad, Bill, along with the Hide and Seek podcast host, James Basinger. Even if it's 20 years, I mean we're still gonna want an answer at some point in time. And, mm -hmm. and so I don't think anybody really ever quite gives up that hope. Nancy Moyer's family thought it was all over in July after Eric Roberts called 911 saying he killed the Tenino mother in March of 2009. But then Roberts took back his confession and police didn't have enough evidence to charge him. It was just a stab to the heart that it's not over. Moyer's daughter Sam and ex-husband Bill have new reason for new hope. Actually, I really think it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I like the fact that this is something innovative that hasn't been done before. A four-day convention this weekend at the Seattle Wesson will bring together more than 300 criminologists and amateur detectives looking to solve Moyer's case. A $329 ticket gets you access to the police report and the chance to ask questions of detectives and share your theory about the case. We'll have multiple rooms throughout the weekend that people can go into. Podcaster James Basinger helped bring the convention to Seattle. This is a story of Nancy Moyer. His podcast, Hide and Seek, is credited with shining new light on the case. The sheriff's office even thinks the attention might have prompted the confession. I didn't see this coming, no. He hopes his conference will finally crack the case. It would be exactly what I hoped for and, and you know, but it would be more, um, I, I can't even put into words what that would be like to knowing that the Moyers can now move forward. There's a lot of cases out there that could have been chosen. The convention gives the Moyers reason to be grateful and once again, hopeful. I would just be happy. It's over. I have answers. 
I know what happened. It'd be amazing. Here's Samantha describing what that experience was like for her. We got a bunch of different perspective on it and like possibilities, but nothing solid came from it. Um, nothing they could really follow up with. A lot of people just agreed that it was Eric and some people agreed that it was Bernard Howell and it just didn't lead to anything. But being there, it was uh, just crazy. It's like going to an interview for like a news station or a show or something, except there's hundreds of people there instead. Um, so you're just, you're on the spot. Everyone's looking at you. Everyone's just feeling bad for you. It's weird. And they're prying into your life and you're trying to help. And there's people that kind of just didn't pay attention to me because I was nine when she went missing. So they're like, there's no way you remember. You can't remember that much. And I mean, I don't remember everything, but I remember a lot. I asked Sam what she'd want people to remember about her mom, Nancy. I think I just want people to remember the who she was. She was a fun nice loving mother and she she would never like walk away from us that's obviously not a possibility she was a just a lovely person in general some of the things that people have said just about the case about her are just not true and it's heartbreaking that people would ever say those things about her here's the thing in addition to losing her mother in such a horrific way to to have her just poof disappear, and go years and years without knowing what has happened to her, if she's alive, if she's dead. And now, by spreading the word to get people interested in her mom's case with the hopes of bringing attention that will lead to answers, she also has to process the horrible things that people have said about her mom. A lot of victim shaming, saying that, well, she did go to parties. Well, she was, um, there are stories about her smoking weed. There's stories about her sleeping around. The whole double mint juicy fruit tattoo and everything about that. I don't know if you heard about that. I had seen the tattoo in a photo as an identifying marker for people to be on the lookout for. But Samantha says that people have gossiped about that tattoo and that it was related to an intimate encounter which Samantha shared with me. I didn't include it here because it doesn't matter. Nancy was a grown woman, and what she did or didn't do in her personal life isn't anyone's business, except for if it's related to the case. And Samantha explains that, that even though she's in her early 20s, she will always see her mother through the eyes of a little girl. I saw my mom as the best person ever. She couldn't do anything wrong. She was perfect. And even though we were like poor and the house was messy and we only had junk food, I, I didn't see that. I just thought it was home and this was great. And I love my life. And just people are just rude. <laughs> you don't know her. So why are they talking about her in that way? I can so clearly see Samantha as that nine-year-old little girl just yearning for her mother. I don't know if you noticed it, but in that cut, she mentioned that her mom had junk food in the house. And there's a little backstory to that, too. I mentioned earlier that Nancy had two daughters. Samantha was her younger daughter, and if you hadn't noticed, is very active in trying to solve her mom's case. But according to Samantha, her older sister, Amanda, had a little spat with her mom, and as it would turn out, that was the last conversation that she'd had with her mother. My mom and her kind of weren't getting along at the time because my sister was upset that our mom only had um, 
what she called junk food at the house. And I mean, I didn't really care because I, I like junk food, um, but she was getting upset because she only had junk food and we never ate like real dinners in her opinion. And so she had a fight with our mom before our mom went missing about that. And my sister's just been weird about the whole situation ever since. She wants nothing to do with um, the TV shows. The She hasn't watched any of them. She hasn't listened to any of uh, Hide and Seek, the podcast. She just distanced herself from all of it because she says that she wants to focus on college and getting her career and focus on going forward basically and I don't really can't I can't go forward without mm-hmm. doing all this here's the tragedy in cases like these you've got one daughter Samantha who can't let go until she knows what happened and you have another daughter who wants to put it behind her and yet you know in the back of her subconscious somewhere that little argument will always be there She was only 11 years old, and I can hear that conversation because it's one I've had with my own daughters when I've been really busy with work, and they're like, Mom, what's for dinner? You haven't cooked in a long time. I mean, it's such a benign thing, and yet I hope that Samantha's older sister doesn't look back on that last conversation and feel bad. I never knew Nancy, but I know for certain that she would never want her daughter to dwell on that, and that she'd also want Samantha to move on. According to kidshealth.org, after a parent's death, children may want to tell you what happened, where they were when they were told about the death, and what it was like for them, and that telling their story in this way is a healing experience. One of the best ways adults can help young grievers is to listen to their stories. I think that's what drives many children who grow into adulthood where their parent has gone missing and murdered, and they don't know what happened. Samantha says the not knowing is what continues to drive her, despite the trolls. Just know that I'm reading all the comments and I will go off on you if you say anything bad, uh, even if it's a different family. Just don't say those things. It's not cool. It's not nice. People are suffering and you're just hurting them. So are you saying that you've had a lot of people on the different websites say mean stuff or on social media say mean stuff about your mom? It's not always mean stuff about my mom. It's just insensitive in general. And people say that my dad did it and my dad's a horrible person. My mom's a horrible person. Uh, The family seems broken. Just, Just rude, insensitive things. They don't know us. They don't know the full story. They can't jump to conclusions like that. So where is the case at now? My mom's case is so old and cold So she's not like her items aren't in front of the line because they have active cases that need to be tested for DNA. And so we're just waiting to hear if any of my mom's DNA is on Eric's stuff. And then we have more stuff to send and more stuff to send. We have a bunch of stuff to send there. And it's just going to take the longest time because her case is so cold and they need to test other things first. Despite confessing to the murder of Nancy Moyer, Eric Roberts would later recant that confession. In fact, he would give an interview with the host of the Hide and Seek podcast, James Basinger, about his confession. And he would say that he didn't remember confessing and that the medication he was taking could have affected his memory. Quote, I just have no recollection of that. I don't know what to think of that. 
I had nothing to do with her disappearance. Eric Roberts continues to maintain his innocence in connection to Nancy's disappearance and presumed murder. He is a free man. If you have any information regarding Nancy Moyer's case, please contact the Thurston County Sheriff's Office at 360-786-5279. Has any information about where we can find Nancy? That's the biggest piece of the puzzle that we need to finish to kind of get to resolution in this case. So anybody with any information out there, we're interested in it. And um, for her daughters, if nothing else, if we could uh, bring her to back to them. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.